you use critical race theories, the plural, mm. because there are multiple sets of scholarship. It's, it's no, let's think critically about race. Let's think critically about history. Let's think critically about the law. You have to look clearly at the past in order to move forward to the future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Social Discord. I am Dalen Turk, your host for today's episode, and you're listening to episode 21, and we're going to dive into critical race theory. Now, if you're a listener of the show from previous times or you're coming in for the first episode today, um, you will see that I'm not joined by my co-hosts, Curtis Medina and Kara Tebow. Uh, We had some scheduling conflicts, so unfortunately, they could not attend this interview with me. Um, But the person who could attend with me, I'm very excited about. He is a professor of history and the director of African-American studies at the University of Montana, which I will add is, I believe, the third oldest African-American studies program in the country, which is so cool. And I think when people say African-American studies in Montana, they would not think that. So I'm happy to have Tobin Miller-Shearer with me today. Thanks for joining me. Oh, delighted to be here, Dalen. What a pleasure to get to have this conversation with you. And before we started recording, you mentioned, and I think I had seen this just you know through social media and whatnot, a nonprofit that you run. Could you touch on that a little bit real quick? Yeah. In the aftermath of George Floyd's murder last summer, my inbox blew up with speaking and consulting requests. I had a previous career doing anti-racism educating and organizing for about 15 years before I went back and got my doctorate and did the professorial gig. And my wife and I felt very uncomfortable about the money I was earning doing that. So we started a nonprofit. It's called Widerstand Consulting. Widerstand is a German word from my own background. That means resistance or resisting racism, but it also in its English pronunciation sort of evokes the idea of a wider stand, more people. We do anti-racism online training, uh, in-person training, and anti-racism audits. Uh, We also have a a mandate to give away 50% of our net income. I do all my work pro bono for Widerstand. Um, We have a predominantly female, majority people of color board that holds me accountable for the work we do. And right now we have a 10-member team who works alongside me in doing these audits and trainings and consulting, that sort of thing. We've worked with about 60 groups in the last year, ranging from the entire state of Maryland's public library system to most recently right now, my colleague Conrad Moore and I are doing a set of uh, training for trainers for Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So just, and then host of groups in between. So it's, it's been something on the side that I've been doing. Just something on the side, no big deal. So this, the past like two years for you have been pretty crazy. That it sounds like I've given 150 presentations just in the last calendar, uh, last the uh, 12 months. Wow. Well, I appreciate you joining me today amidst that crazy schedule you've got. So as I said in the intro today, we're going to be talking about critical race theory and kind of race in general. And I know when we were talking before, you mentioned that you've implemented critical race theory. You're not necessarily a critical race scholar per se, um, but you've implemented in the classroom and in your consulting. And I want to hear from you what your definition is of critical race theory, because I see all over the place. There's kind of the two spectrums where there's the perspective of critical race theory is basically looking at the past of the United States, looking at the laws that have founded our uh, uh, 
social system and political system today. And it's basically looking at the way race has influenced those laws and how race has been in, uh, put in place in those laws, either negatively or um, in a uh, positive way. And another kind of, I guess, negative perspective I've seen of critical race theory is people saying, if you're white, you're automatically racist and everything that happened in the past is your fault and you have to bear responsibility. And, you know, we're dividing our kids in the classrooms and saying that, you know, critical race theory is saying that you can only identify with your race, not your behavior, not your, you know, what you um, do for what your family does, what, you know, whatever it may be. And so there's this crazy divide that I haven't seen a clear idea, I guess, in mainstream media of what critical race theory is. So in your experience, what would you explain to somebody, someone who's never heard it before, what would you explain to them what it is? Sure. I I think the first thing to note is that critical race theory isn't even the term we use in the scholarly community to talk about that body of literature. Really? We use critical race theories, the plural, Mm. because there are multiple sets of scholarship, some that don't agree agree with each other entirely, but the common theme and interest of defining what critical race theory is, is simply an attempt to research very carefully how we explain the fact that after the passage of laws which end official racial discrimination in this country, we still have evidence of systemic racism taking place. How do we explain that? And what critical race theory offers is it's a it's sort of emerged from uh, legal scholars to begin with, but mm-hmm. it's much wide, wide ranger wide ranging influences in other disciplines, whether sociology or history, um, just across the board, to be able to examine the ways in which systemic un- racism unfolds in our society. And it gives us some very c- important concepts to do that. It gives us some very important analytical structures to do that. Um, this is the analogy I've been using recently to try to explain uh, what I think's going on. So the attempts to ban critical race theory by state legislators or here in Montana mm-hmm. by our attorney general. It's been pretty little- notably observant in Montana from what I've seen. Right. Yeah. Um, what, what it's a little bit like is someone saying coming to their accounting books and looking at the bottom line to discover there's a debt and then deciding because there's a debt there, we're not going to deal with that debt to figure out how we can address it. We're going to stop teaching accounting. We're just, <laughs> we're just going to do that because that's clearly going to solve the problem because we can't talk about it anymore. We won't have sort of the ideas that are necessary to figure out how you balance books, we're just going to stop teaching accounting. So the parallel here is we have a problem around racial inequity in this country. That's our ledger. And rather than saying, oh, we're just going to make it go away by not talking about it, we're going to try to give us, we're going to stop talking about the very tools that allow us to address it and correct the imbalance. Um, that That's the frustrating part of me because there's a part for me because there's some really good tools that help us understand what's going on, that, that owe a debt to critical race theory. And we need more of it, not less in this in this time in our nation's history. In, in your observations, can you tell where that 
toxic feeling towards critical race theory comes from that idea of instead of teaching accounting, we're just going to stop teaching accounting. Where, where does that mindset come from? Because it, it seems to me, it just seems so left field. There is racism. Therefore we should teach about racism so we can prevent racism. It, it just seems pretty linear to me, I guess. Well, I mean, we, we know where this comes from. It's a very particular legislative agenda that has come out of groups like the American Legislative Exchange, the Heritage Foundation, the Discovery Institute. They, they decided this was going to be their way to rile up their base and to create this boogeyman. I mean, it's happened mm. before. We had this boogeyman say, of, oh, if we don't do anything to, to you know, deal with the Islamic community, we're going to end up with Sharia law here in our country. That was right. the, that was the other boogeyman that you put up. This is their decision, a very cynical decision, to try to put up and say, okay, critical race theory, that's the thing that's threatening us all right at this moment. Let's get rid of that. And I think one of the, the ironies is these are some of the very same groups who get absolutely irate anytime someone talks about threatening free speech. Right. And I don't know how you wrap your mind around that contradiction because everything I've seen of the legislation coming out, the attorney general's opinion, are a attack on free speech. Just full stop. So I don't know how you reconcile. <laughs> it's, I mean, it is really ironic because it's the same situation of, um, you know, the, the defund the police, right? So defund the police, they bash it, bash it, bash it. And then January 6th happens, and they're the people who assumingly voiced their discretion against defund the police were the ones attacking the police on the Capitol. It's, it seems like it's kind of the same thing where it just kind of shifts over where they find the next thing that's going to destroy America. And they just it, it seems like confirmation bias has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. In my mind... I mean, and I, I want to be careful that I'm not engaging in a process of stereotyping those who are attacking critical race theory, critical race theory either. Right. So one of the things I did very deliberately, even before we had this opinion in my own state in Montana, uh, banning critical race theory and anti-racism educating, et cetera, I reached out to six uh, Southern Baptist uh, seminary presidents as well as the governor of Idaho, all who were part of deliberate efforts to ban critical race theory within their seminary or their state. Really? And I'm a religious community. I belong to the Christian community. They all identify as Christians. So I, I wrote an open letter to them and said, hey, I would like to talk with you about your decision because as a historian, everything I know tells us that anytime there's official attempts to ban an idea, it only makes the idea grow stronger. You have to know this. There's got to be something else going on there. I want to hear what, what's bringing you to this ill-advised decision to try to ban an idea. I mean, just to give you an example of it, our African-American Studies program has a Facebook page. We post things on it, you know, periodically. We did a whole bunch of posts every day for Black History Month in February. The most prior to this critical race theory debate that any of our individual posts had uh, views had received was 800. In the aftermath of the attorney general's opinion, banning critical race theory in Montana, I wrote a response, put it on our page. It's been read 16,000, well, six, almost 16,500 uh, 16, wow. times. So it, it, as I predicted, 
attempts to ban mm-hmm. ideas, draw people to those ideas. So there's got to be something else going on. I fear it's just a cynical move to try to sort of, again, create this straw man, heavily caricatured in the very kind of ideas you talked about earlier, that um, they are they are creating a crisis where none exists. That's, again, by, by saying, okay, let's stop teaching accounting. Yeah. We're just did you get any responses from those who you reached out to i I was very disappointed of the seven men i wrote to one wrote back and he simply said i'm gonna pass really was that a did you expect that did you expect them to want to talk i i i did it not because i was doing some kind of grandstanding i did it because i generally wanted the conversation yeah. And I'd hope that of the seven, I'd get at least one that we could just hop on Zoom like we're doing right now mm-hmm. and have a conversation. That didn't happen. It was very disappointing. Do you think, and I wonder if they turned it down for the reason that, in my experience, reaching out in kind of the same circumstance of reaching out to someone who has opposing views to me or opposing views of the topic I'm trying to discuss, is they're, they're afraid of basically an attack on them an attack on their values and mindset and basically just kind of like a, an I gotcha type journalism thing, you know? Yeah. I made like, clear that this would be in the press. It would be a, a one-to-one conversation. I had no interest in convincing them of anything. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to understand their perspective better. They may not have believed that that's quite possible. Um, so yeah, I don't know, but it was disappointing. I, I mean, anytime don't have an opportunity to have conversation. That's a loss for us all. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Um, did you, um, I think it was on uh, um, June 23rd yesterday, um, for those who are listening to date this episode, um, did you listen to General uh, Mark Milley speak in Congress? I did. I mean, I, I listened to it today. I didn't uh, see it live, but yeah, I absolutely did listen to him. What were your, what were your thoughts on that? And for those um, who haven't heard that look it up it's uh general mark milley he's the uh joint chief of staff for the military um and uh he was speaking in front of congress and he tried to answer a question and representative mark gates basically turned him down because the question was asked to somebody else can't remember his name some uh i think another military personnel of sorts um i think general austin and um someone else yielded their time to Mark and um, he was able to give his perspective on critical race theory, and it was, I think, along the same lines of what we have expressed in this episode thus far. Um, but w- what were your thoughts on his perspective that he shared? Well, I thought he was spot on. I mean, he was rational. He said at one point, simply because I've read um, Karl Marx doesn't make me a communist. Right. I, I, I'm a white man. I want to understand. What happened to bring a thousand people to attempt to to actually attack the Capitol building? And he said, critical race theory is a part of me understanding that. Why would I not read that? Um, I thought it was a, a straightforward and entirely cogent response. That it came from the military is really interesting. Yeah, The military has a mixed record. There's lots of systemic issues of racism that have been part of that history that continue today. But at the same time, they've done pretty well at actually getting people of color into leadership positions and moving that forward. Mm -hmm. So it's not really that much of a surprise for me that if it's going to come from any of our 
sort of organized community of the state, that that's a quite likely place it would come from. Um, when, frankly, I expect to hear more from that than I would from some parts of organized religion. When um, General Milley was speaking, he used a term that kind of stuck with me, and it was when he was talking about, you know, I'm white, like I want to learn this, and he used the term white rage. Yeah. And I guess I have a sense of that white rage is kind of happening right now. Can, can you talk about, like, in your perspective, what he meant by white rage and historically what that means or what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we could point to any number of places in the history of the United States where the country was at a turning point in shifting away from white supremacy in some form. And we know from historical study that the one point at which white identity is named publicly is when it is under threat. So I'll go back way into history. Pre-establishment of the United States, the colony of Virginia, this would be late 18th century, Bacon's Rebellion, in which, um, it's actually, I'm sorry, late 17th century, um, a, a group of um, Native Americans escaped enslaved Afri- formerly enslaved Africans and poor whites banded together because they recognized a common class cause, right? That they're, they're coming together and then they have a rebellion against the landed gentry. It was over, it was, it was quelled. But in the aftermath of that, you had the landed gentry, who would of course have been white, begin to recognize in new ways the poor whites on the street to give them a sense of racial unity, even though their economic position wasn't going to change. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, W.B. Du Bois, the famous African-American scholar and then historian since him building on his work, like David Rodiger and others have talked about the wages of whiteness. That's a Du Bois quote, a psychological idea that if I have a racial identity that gives me a sense of superiority, I'm going to work against my own self-interest by uh, aligning with that racial identity and rejecting common uh, class cause that could actually change my financial position. This is some of the exploration that critical race theory does, is to look at that and say, hey, there were white folks that were under threat. Normally, they don't have to think about their racial identity because of the way Social structures are set up to give white people a sense of normalcy, a sense of superiority. But when it was under threat, or to use the years uh, in any form whatsoever, that's when that white rage begins to emerge. And we see that bubbling up. Happen then, we could point to any number of places between then and the January 6th attack on the Capitol building, where we saw that same sort of threat emerging and that same sort of white rage bubbling up. Can it, it, it? It's so interesting because I feel like there's like, and I know we hear a lot of people talking about white privilege and what that means and how. And I, I feel like white privilege has consistently let this happen repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly without real much consequence. It it seems like there's been no retribution to these. Like we we get the things that happen. Um, so I mean, for example, we'll say you know we we get the Civil Rights Act, 
gets put in place, great. And it seems like white people look at it and say, great, problem solved, we can move forward. We're all good. But it seems like this consistently happens and they just point back to, well, but you got this, so it's fine. But then they keep having kind of, I'll say, temper tantrums because I'll call January 6th the temper tantrum. So what what role does the term white privilege play into this and the existence of white rage through these cycles that it seems to live through? Right. So sometimes when people ask questions about the concept of white privilege in a context of talking about critical race theory, the question is asked along the lines of, well, what good will it do for white people to admit white privilege or to go through somehow a process of recognizing or coming to terms with that? Mm-hmm. That's not the point of the language or the concepts of white privilege that critical race theory gives us. Okay. What it point rather is to be able to actually define the problem so we can come up with a solution that will have a chance of making a difference. So my wife's a nurse and she's taught me that there's such thing as a nursing diagnosis, which is different than a doctor's diagnosis. They're looking for different things. So we, in the work that we do, we use the language of our diagnosis determines our therapy. How we define the problem leads to the kind of solutions that we suggest. For too long, much of the solutions we've offered in, in conversations about race and racism in this country have simply been focused on trying to repair a group that's broken. And that group that's broken has been pointed to the African Problem of racism, African-American people are broken, let's fix them. Mm-hmm. Problem of racism, members of the indigenous community are broken, let's fix them. Say the same thing about Asian-American, Pacific Islanders, Latinx community, etc. But what the critical race theory and, and then the concept of white privilege says, well, you know, the way the problem isn't that people of color are broken. The problem is that our systems have been put in place to serve white people in white society. Let's fix that. It's not a matter of sort of encouraging guilt. It's not a matter of um, somehow asking people to feel shame about their identity. It's saying we've got this system that continues to give the benefit of the doubt, whether we use the language of um, implicit bias, however we describe that. We've got lots of research to show that's a reality. Um, We're socialized that way. We've got systems that back it up. Let's fix that so that our systems are responding to everyone equally. Mm-hmm. That's a way to actually deal with the problem and not just have our attention played on the, on the um, results of the problem. The problem is that we have this system designed to make white people feel comfortable, make white people feel good, make white people normal, and then we get the benefits of that. We re- reap those financial benefits and psychological benefits. We need to change that. It's not a matter of, make, of shame or guilt. It's that we've got a broken system. Let's fix it. It's really interesting to hear you say that because, and honestly, for you and the people listening, I hadn't heard of critical race theory until the past handful of months when it started blowing up in media, which I feel like is a fault on my own. Um, But what you kind of just explained, I feel like we've tried to implement in this show, for example, in our uh, uh, Queer's History and our Whose Gender Is It Anyway series, where we dive into um, the history of uh, the queer community, the LGBTQ community in America, and then the history of um, the trans community in America. 
it we we dove a lot into the issues within the community but we dove probably i mean i would say more so into the issues of the laws that are implemented directly against those in the community for example um in our um queer's history series we discovered there were literally laws in new york that made it illegal for women to wear pants you know and we had the lavender scare which was basically a counter to the red scare where the red scare was the scare of communism and the lavender scare was the scare of lgbtq people and so there were laws put in place by the government that allowed and you can listen back to these episodes to hear this in more depth but there were laws put into place that allowed government agencies and government uh, um, positions to either not hire or just outright fire people based off of their sexuality or gender. And so it's, it's like, well, what's the issue there that this person is working in the government and they happen to be gay or the fact that there is a law that allows them to fire somebody based off of their sexuality and gender. And to me, it seems like to fight against critical race theories, plural, says oh well the fact that there was a law that allowed this to happen isn't the point like that doesn't matter we're going to put that under the rug and so it sounds like that's exactly what you were saying oh yeah i mean this is the same sort of conversation that emerges when those who are attempting to curtail or ban critical race theory say all it does is make people feel guilty about the past and make people feel responsible for decisions made in the past Again, this, that's not the point. I mean, mm-hmm. This is the point. Let's use the example of restrictive covenants. So restrictive covenants were language that were used in, across the country, particularly in the aftermath of World War II, uh, when you've got the returning GIs, you've got federal housing bill being put in place. Many of those, and we, I think we could say most of those, um, Restrictive covenants in deeds of sale said this house may only be sold to a white person or some kind of mm-hmm. uh, the, the negative. It may own, it, it may not be sold to a black person or it varies by region of the country. It might be Mexican-American someplace, etc. That was outlawed in 1948, but the practice continued all the way through the passage of the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, where it was finally removed from broad practice. But in those interceding decades, you had the establishment of white suburbs. Right. People of color need not apply. Now, obviously, there were some black uh, suburbs here and there, say like a community Markham, south side of Chicago. But most of those white suburbs were deliberately designed through the restri- restrictive covenants to keep folks of color out. That was an establishment of an intergenerational base, basis of wealth that was racially determined. We have legacies of that that we carry forward that, again, the ledger is unequal. We've got to deal with that ledger. We don't deal with the ledger by getting rid of economics. we got to go deeper into it to better and more sophisticated skills so we can figure out a way forward. How do you explain to somebody... Because I, I, I see a lot of the argument is, oh, well, that happened 200 years ago. You know, that happened 100 years ago. How do you explain to somebody that these legacies of these laws, of these practices exist? And although some, you know, with the Civil Rights Act died out, but it still took them decades and decades 
to be taken out of place. And even today, those effects are still happening. How do you explain to somebody that time does not heal all wounds? You know, it, there are certain things where time, it just mm-hmm. things pass. But these legacies, as you put it, they keep living on and affecting those today. And how do you explain to somebody that that's a thing? Oh, any number of ways. I mean, we could talk about the funding of schools that have them that follow the patterns of those communities that were established by restrictive covenants, where the property values of homes determines the amount of funding that goes to the schools that follows race lines. We could use that. We could talk about the modern day system of reservations for Native American mm-hmm. communities. We could talk about the legacy of the Dawes Act, I believe it's 1882, that kept much of that law from being personally and individually owned by members of the Native American community. That carries forward to the present. We could talk about this, I referenced this earlier, the idea of implicit bias, where this, the messages that are sent, for example, in the medical field, have conditioned medical practitioners to, for instance, assume that members of the black community just don't need as um, much ameliorative care because they can handle pain better. We know this. It's given us a, a system in which judges are more likely to give more severe punishments to people who are perceived, perceived to have more Afrocentric features. We, we know this. We've got plenty of evidence that shows this to be the case. That has real-life implications. There's implications about who gets followed in the stores as a suspect. In fact, I use this anecdote in Chicago of a gang, an interracial gang, that had figured this out, that if a black or brown child went into a store, they were going to be followed by the, the, the personnel to be sure they weren't shoplifting. Mm-hmm. So what they would do in their obviously reprehensible um, interest in stealing stuff from a store, they'd send a brown or or black member in first so that all the attention would be paid to them. And then a white member of the gang would go in and they steal what they wanted because no one's looking at them because it's a white person. They're not going to steal anything. So, I mean, all those legacies are with us today in our socialization. Again, we need to know more about it so we can stop doing it. We don't need to know less about it to pretend it's not there. It's really interesting you bring up that analogy of the, you know, the white and the uh, black or brown person walking into the um, grocery store because uh, before this, I was doing some research and I looked up, um, I watched a video of uh, Trevor Noah on The Daily Show explaining uh, uh, critical race theory. And I I love Trevor Noah. Um, Then I watched another. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, I'm actually going to see him in Missoula in uh, next April. I'm very excited. Well, Um, we, we bought tickets when he was supposed to be here. So I assume our tickets will be soon, will still be good. Cause we want I think we're going to hear him too. I sure hope so. Cause it's going to be a wonderful yeah, show. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I watched it. So it was kind of two spectrums. I watched uh, him explaining it. And then I watched a video from Prager U, which I, are you familiar with Prager U? I, no, I, I don't know that. Prager U. I don't know if it's a real university or if it's just like an internet presence, but they're basically oh. a, a far-right think tank kind of a thing. Um, and it's okay. it's I, I they might have like an actual school base. I'm not sure, but that's like Prager University is their thing. And it's just a far-right-leaning kind of propaganda oh. machine. 
And so I watched their video on critical race theory, and they use kind of the similar analogy in a different context, however, and they used it to explain how critical race theory, no matter what you do, if you are white, you are inherently racist. And the way they explained that is a white and a black man walk into a grocery store. The white man walks in, or they walk in at the same time, and the cashier attends to the white man first. Well, that makes the cashier racist because he's putting the white man superior to the black man because he went to him first and he wanted to help him first. And then the counter to that was, well, he goes to help the black man first. Well, he's racist because he doesn't trust the black man. He thinks the black man's going to steal. Therefore, he's going to give him his attention first. And so basically with that, they're saying no matter what you do, critical race theory labels you as racist if you are white. And it's, it's just interesting to hear those kind of analogies within different contexts. Um, and obviously, I mean, that's not what critical race theory is saying. But it's, it, for me, it was just kind of interesting to hear that because it's, once again, these two different perspectives that are just wildly different. Yeah, and I, I mean, as a historian... I have to, I think we have to be clear at this moment. My, my training is to assess the evidence. And those who are promoting bans on critical race theory, it's not a matter of just a different perspective. It's a willful and deliberate attempt to distort the facts of what critical race theory is. That's not just two different sides disagreeing on their perspectives, that's one side being very clear that they are going to create a caricature of something and they're not going to base it on what this actually does or mm -hmm. what it's about. So I, I resist the idea that these are different perspectives. No, this is a, a deliberate campaign okay. to try to undermine a academic area of discourse where people within the who define themselves somehow within critical race theory don't all agree about the best way to define. There, there's absolutely some common wisdom that's emerged, common findings, common facts. But this is not just uh, one side versus the other. This mm -hmm. is an attempt to undermine academic freedom and to undermine a clear-eyed assessment of U.S. history. You know, and, and that is a fair point that you raise. Um, for example, I remember um, I was talking to my friend Nikki, who's earning her Ph.D., in, uh, at uh, UGA right now, and her program, they utilize um, critical race theory quite a bit, from what I hear. Um, and I remember I had read a uh, an article about how there was a school in California, it was like Abraham Lincoln High or whatever, and they were looking to change their name and, you know, whatever the context of that may be. But I, you know, I raised the point of, well, it's, you know, it's Abraham Lincoln, like, what's, like, what's wrong with him? And, you know, he freed the slaves, emancipation, all that, you know. And she raised the point of, well, yes, that that is correct. And I, you know, I didn't think of this. She's like, but also look at the other side of it at Native Americans, where Abraham Lincoln did little to nothing to help out Native Americans in the country. And so people say, oh, you know, free the slaves, all this, all this. But we, we can't ignore like, yeah, you know, Abraham Lincoln's up there, but we can't ignore the either negligent stuff, the bad stuff, or just the stuff that just didn't happen. Um, and so when I would hear people say, you know, oh, Abraham Lincoln, we're going to ban Abraham Lincoln. It, it's like you said, and I didn't realize until you just said it, where it's not a perspective, it's undermining the point. Oh, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I, I get really troubled by 
as I hear these public figures opposing critical race theory is that it seems to suggest we only we have two options. We celebrate and do nothing but celebrate mm-hmm. historical figures, or we do nothing but excoriate historical figures. Yeah. Everything I do in the classroom, everything I do in my scholarship is attempting to open up the past in all of its complexity. Mm-hmm. We have some egalitarian values that are at the core of what this nation says it's about. Those have been compromised by the enslavement of one community, by the attempted genocide of another, and we cannot elide that history. We cannot pretend that never happened, but it doesn't mean that we then say we can never be trying our best to implement values of democracy and egalitarianism. Right. History is complex. The students I work with and the public I engage with, they are smart enough to get that. I mean, it's this whole thing about indoctrination that uh, you know, I hear of right now. indoctrination being thrown around every corner of the internet. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard family members say it and it, it please, yeah, please continue. <laughs> so this is what I've been saying lately. I think the people of Montana or the people of any state in which that accusation is made that these teachers and professors are indoctrinating their students should be insulted. They should be livid that the legislators, the attorney general is assuming that their constituency aren't smart enough to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. If I tried to indoctrinate my students in my class, I couldn't do it. They, I encourage them to, to push back against the things I say. I want them to come out to be critical race thinkers. I, I mean, I want them to, come out to, be, to be critical thinkers. I don't want them to come out to think like I think. Right. That's not the point. Well, the irony is that's the skill to assess. That's the critical in critical race theory is thinking critically right. about race. Like that's critical that thinking. critical thinking. It's the whole point of the theory. Like yeah. it's not thinking, oh, everything's racist. Everyone should hate each other. It's it's no. Let's think critically about race. Let's think critically about history. Let's think critically about the law and the way race plays a role in it. And it seems like that goes over a lot of people's heads. Yeah, and it's 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 just um, discouraging to me where we are at a point in our nation's history where the free, thoughtful, and rigorous examination of who we are, where we've come from, is attempting to be ignored, rewritten, and erased in some ways. Here's here's a disturbing example. Um, a family member, I won't say, in one of the states in which legislature that legislators have passed and put a ban on critical race theory, mm-hmm. was talking with a. Which, real quick, can I say theory. how scary that is to hear to put a ban on a theory? Yep. That that's a really yep. scary sentence you just said. Very very scary. In one of those states. A middle school teacher told my family member, who is also a social studies teacher, that they were just not going to teach the history of desegregation because they were so concerned that they would end up being awry of the law. That should make us all terrified. Wow. 
that we are, our children are not learning important process that we should be proud about, that we learned how to overcome the process of segregation. We should feel good about that. It also has complexities. There were damages done even in the midst of attempting to undermine racism that were in some ways racist itself, but we got to know the whole story or we're never going to be able to make better decisions going forward. So to hear that those kind of uh, legislative maneuvers, as cynical as they are, are ending up in a, a given classroom that a set of students won't learn the history of desegregation, that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's... I think there's a common misconception that critical race theory is going to start being taught, you know, in every school everywhere. But like critical race theory, you know, it's been around for like four decades now. Um, 30, and 40 decades. And it, it was, it was years, yeah. originally taught within law school as a way to analyze race within the law. And it was actually coined by, um, oh, goodness, what was her name? I've got it right here. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw in the 90s. Um, and she was kind of the the leader of the whole idea of critical race theory. Um, she's one co-writer of the few books on the theory um, itself um, or theories. Um, but th- there's this big fear of it reaching the classroom. But and so they're banning it. Bef- it feels like the, they're putting the cart before the horse here in some instances. So so what way do you see? the ban of the use of this method of this theory, how does that affect the classroom? Because I've seen a lot of my friends who are teachers on social media, they've expressed how they cannot teach race and teach history critically to their students. They cannot have these critical thinking exercises and conversations with their students because they're no longer allowed to talk about race and these types of things. So what impact of that does that have moving forward in our education system? Well, I think it's got a number of them. One of my colleagues in my observation is that when we get to a classroom or to say a workshop uh, training setting, we can pretty much predict that for the, those in the room who identify as white, they are going to have less facility with, ease, understanding, and experience with talking about race in general and their own racial identity in particular. Our society sets those of us who are white just not to have to talk about that much. We can also anticipate, and it's been proven time and time again, that members of the black, brown, African and indigenous Native American communities, Asian American, etc., they're going to come in the room with a greater facility of talking about race and racism because our society sets up that requires them to think about their racial identity. If we are now moving forward to an educational um, environment in which white students are going to be even less capable of talking about race Mm. and students of color are not going to have their experiences validated or themselves aren't going to be equipped with a more sophisticated language to talk about race, We are going to be deepening a divide that already exists where already we know that in many settings, white people and people of color are talking past each other in terms of uh, what racism is and how it operates. So we are only setting a stage to create even more conflict down the road by not equipping our students and ourselves to have that conversation now in more and better and productive ways. It seems like it's that continuation of the the white lens through which history is told. 
and history is taught. It's it, you know, it's preserving that lens. You know, um, like I, I have someone, um, and I won't, you know, of course, say who they are, but they, like, honest to goodness, didn't even realize the extent to which Native Americans have been affected, and didn't even realize that uh, uh, reservations were still a thing. Because they, they never learned it in high school. They were never taught it in elementary school. They didn't really learn it until they got to college. Um, and someone, I think, just like an offhand started talking about reservations or whatever it was. Um, and that's, to me, as someone who, who loves history and loves social studies, to me, that was really shocking. But, it, you know, I'm, I'm scared of a continuation of that happening. I can't tell you the number of times in the 13 years I've taught at the University of Montana when just four weeks into my intro class in African-American studies, and African-American history, I love students come up to me irate. Not at me, but at the fact that their educational experience K through 12 had taught them nothing about what they'd already learned in just four weeks in one of my classes. Wow. And that's not, I'm not there indoctrinating them in critical race theory. All I'm doing is telling the history of the African-American community. Mm -hmm that they knew nothing about. And this isn't just white students. This also includes African-American, really? Native American students as well, who have also been denied the telling of that history. They just don't know, and they're mad because they've been, that information has been, we can we have to say it's been kept from them. Well, it's saddening you say that because, and, and for those listening, um, I, I took, um, unfortunately, I only took one of Tobin's classes. Um, I'm so upset that I hadn't taken more. I think I, I took, it was, it was African-American history, 1865 through like 1945. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. It just an incredible class. It's, it was one of the most impactful and I took it either the first semester or last semester of my senior year at University of Montana. And it was easily one of the most impactful classes I had ever taken. And during my time at the university, I was working for the athletic department. And every Friday, my job was to set up the tailgates outside of the football stadium. And yeah, that was my Fridays. <laughs> I didn't know that was your job, Dale, and that's interesting. Yeah, so I, yeah, um, I, I did a lot for university athletics. But on top of that, I was just like my Friday duties and then everything else beyond that. Um, and so, um, anyways, one of the uh, students working with me, my senior, he was new as his first year. So I was kind of showing him the ropes. Um, and I can't remember his name, but he was, um, a, a black man from the South. And I remember talking to him about my wife who's from Kansas. And at the time she was living in Texas before I moved down. He was like, Oh, you got a Southern bell. And I was like, yes, sir. I got me a Southern bell. And I remember talking to him about this classes we were taking. And I was like, oh, I'm taking, um, you know, this African-American studies course. And I was talking to him about, uh, I think, one of the essays I was writing for you at the time. And it, it, it will always stick with me because he said, well, you know more about African-American history than I do. And I guess at the time that was kind of shocking because I'm like, well, but you are an African-American. You should know this stuff, right? You know, and so you making that point of, Everybody coming into your class being shocked at what they what little they did know previous, it's a reality. Like it's true. And it's it's very unfortunate yeah. that it's true. Yeah. It, it, all of that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What we're at. I, I feel like when we look at the term critical race theory, 
it seems to be kind of a trigger word. Race in general seems to be kind of a trigger word. Have, have there been any attempts in your experience or just in your observations to kind of ease the progression of this method by kind of curving around the actual words of critical race theory? Because I, I feel like trigger words for people who oppose things like that, I mean, defund the police, defund is a huge trigger word. Because you think defund the police and it's, oh, we're going to take away everything, whatever. It's like, well, and, and in my opinion, I would say um, reform the police is would be a more effective, in my opinion, um, because defund can fall under that umbrella because not every police department needs to necessarily be defunded. It's a different topic. <laughs> but just along with that, have the in your observations, have you seen any efforts to kind of go around that and find different methods of implementing it? So what's interesting is that it's not proponents of the field of critical race theory that have popularized that term. Right. That's come from the attempts to try to find a way to rile a base and create a straw person that they can then have people attempt to burn down. Interesting. What I, what I would note is that the multicultural diversity training community has attempted to address issues of race and racism by not using those words, but talking around the problem. I've been doing a lot of uh, speaking to educators in K-12 and learning environments. And the thing I've said from the 80s through the 90s, most of the educational enterprise within our school systems, vis-a-vis questions of diversity, have attempted to just celebrate diversity. That has not worked. What we need to be doing at this, at this juncture is teaching our students, our children, to have the language to discuss issues of power, privilege, and hierarchy. That will get us to the problem. Mm. My, in my experience, my experience of my colleagues, we don't do anyone a favor by not talking about race and racism. We need to address that issue. It's a little bit like what used to happen with cancer, where we would just not even say the C word because it was it was a, a social anathema. Right. You just you didn't say it because you didn't want to have to deal with it. That was a disservice to anyone who'd ever gotten that disease mm-hmm. because it pushed us away from cures. It pushed us away from research. It pushed us away from solutions. I mean, very similarly to HIV and AIDS. Absolutely. Another great parallel. And so what we're seeing here is the need to say this is what we're talking about. We're going to talk about racism and we're going to talk about it more uh, directly without defensiveness. And we're going to tie it to the history that's not trying just to gloss over what happened that comes to terms with it in order so that we can deal with that problem. Like we're doing with HIV, like we're doing with cancer. We have to address the problem. We can't just talk around the problem. We are, we're coming up on time uh, for the episode. Um, and actually, uh, you, you made the point um, right before that, talking about how it's the um, the people against it who are making the term popular. In the uh, um, clip that I watched from The Daily Show um, with Trevor Noah, he actually pointed out that in the past three and a half months, um, Fox News, and you know, we all know Fox News, um, Fox News had said critical race theory in their newscasts 
I think it was some 13,000 times or something. <laughs> and so another thing to prove your point. Um, yep. But as we're coming up on time, um, I want to give you an opportunity um, to just give out any final thoughts, any you know final remarks you would like to say on the theory, as well as anything that you would like to plug on you know your behalf. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to get through this. I don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be, but I do know that the body politic, this nation, the republic, is never going to be served by any efforts that aren't mature, robust, and direct in their assessment of who we have been in order to figure out who we can become better. We have to look clearly at the past in order to move forward to the future. This attempt to ban critical race theory is an attempt to take away the skills, language, and analysis we need to have that clear assessment of where we've come from to figure out where we need to go and how we can get there. Uh, I got a new book coming out. Ooh, there we go. Dr. Regina Shan Stoltzfus. It's written for religious audiences, so that caveat clear, but it's called Been in the Struggle, uh, Pursuing an Anti-Racist Spirituality. Uh, it will come out November 2nd, available for pre-order right now on, uh, on Amazon and other booksellers. Uh, Been in the Struggle. We, we hope you'll take a look at it. There you go, folks. Take a look. He's a wonderful man. Like I said, I, I unfortunately only took one of his courses, but it, it it was one of the most impactful things I've been through. And actually, if you've listened to the audio drama that I wrote, produced, and directed, um, uh, A Point in Time Peonage, that actually started as an assignment for that class. And That's right. After I, after I graduated, I took it and ended up writing some, it was like a 50-page script out of it and ended up producing the whole thing. So... Um, pay attention when you're in college because it means something. <laughs> but Tobit, I want to thank you so much for joining me. I know you've got a crazy schedule and, and I'm sorry you didn't get a chance to talk with Curtis and uh, Kara. I know they were excited to hear from you, but um, they'll take a listen and hopefully the rest of the listeners enjoy this conversation too. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Dale. And it was a delight. All right, and that'll do it for today's episode of Social Discord. As I said at the top of the episode, unfortunately, Kara and Curtis could not join me for today's interview with Tobin. Um, but nonetheless, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I certainly did. Um, if you want to hear from Curtis and Kara, make sure you listen to some previous episodes on Social Discord. Uh, you can take a look on our website at podcastwithoutborders.com, or you can find it on any podcast app. But if you want to keep listening in the future, make sure you subscribe. Subscribe to it on any podcast platform. And guess what? Our next episode's coming out. It's going to be another heavy hitter on the history of police in America. We're doing a two-part series on the history of police in America. So if you have any questions, any concerns, anything you want to share, anything you want us to touch on, let us know. You can get a hold of us on Facebook, uh, or you can reach us out through email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. Once again, that is pwbnetwork at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you, and I hope you enjoyed the episode, and we will talk to you next time with Karen Curtis on the history of police in America. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Social Discord, part of the Podcast Without Borders Network. You can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. 
Thanks for listening.